How many of you did your reading for tonight? Oh, that's it's better than last time. That's good. Okay, we got a flight. We're, we're way behind. So open up to Acts chapter 10, and we're just going to hit a couple points that we have to hit. And the reason we're stopping to get at chapter 15 is because at chapter 15, or after chapter 15, Acts changes and really becomes the story of Paul's missionary work, which is the foundation for his epistles. So we're going to use it like that. When we do the Pauline epistles, we're going to use Acts 15 to the end uh, as our foundation. Okay, and that's why we're not covering it right now. In chapter 10 of Acts, uh, we were introduced last time to a man named Cornelius and the conversion of his family in chapter 10. And also going into chapter 11 a little bit. Um, no, the story, the, the, the situation continues. What's the problem with Cornelius? What's the problem? Does anybody know? Alright, he's a he's a soldier. What else? What about it? What's the problem with him being a soldier? Another Okay, he's he's well he's not a tanner. Peter was off living with a tanner, right? Which is also kind of not necessarily a problem, but it get, it places Peter in an interesting position as he's about to deal with Cornelius. So what's the problem with Cornelius? He's a Gentile. He's a devout Gentile, but he's still a Gentile. Okay? Most likely Cornelius and his family were not circumcised. And most likely they did not follow the kosher laws, although they respected the God of Israel. And it says he was a man of charity. He gave great alms um, uh, to the people of God. And so Peter uh, has a vision. Okay? In, in chapter 10, verse... 9. Chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and coming near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. You guys with me? Acts 10, verse 9, verse 10. And he became hungry and desired something to eat. So while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open, and something descending like a great sheet, let down by four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, No, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This thing happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Peter ends up going then. Uh, Cornelius sends for him, has a vision, and sends for him. Calls Peter, and when Peter shows up at Cornelius' house, in verse 26. Skip to verse 26. But Peter lifted up... But Peter lifted him, him up, saying, Stand up, I am... I, oh, I should start verse 27. It makes more sense. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with, with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. So how does Peter see his vision about the food? <clears throat> How does he interpret his vision about the food? The food, he see, the sheet comes down with this, all, with these animals on it, and God says, "Kill and eat." And Peter says, "No, no, I've obeyed the law my entire life." 
And then this whole story happens, and he ends up at Cornelius' house. And notice the parallel. What God has called clean, you shall not consider unclean. Okay? Peter interprets the vision he has as not only applying to food, but also his contact with the uncircumcised, the unclean men. Okay? This story becomes a foundation, or the foundation for much of the rest of the New Testament. Okay, that's why we're going to spend our whole day today on the question and, and uh, not even be able to scratch the surface of it. The whole of the Pauline corpus, all of Paul's epistles, deal with that issue right there. Okay, What are the Christians to do about the Gentiles who are considered unclean? What are they to do about the food which is considered unclean? What is the relationship of the Christian community to the world around them? That's the fundamental issue that is going to be the problem facing the early church in the scriptures. And it's going to be dealt with in a number of different ways as Paul, in some sense, develops his own answer, develops his own theology in response to the problem. And that theology is going to be based upon what we read here in Acts chapter 11, or chapter 10, chapter 11. And all the way through chapter 15, especially in chapter 15. Because in chapter 15, the issue comes to a head. Okay? When the story goes on in chapter 10, and in verse, um, uh, let's see. Now let's look, uh, we'll, go, we'll go backwards. Look at chapter 11, verse, uh, verse mm, 14. Verse 15, verse 15. This is Peter giving a response to um, some men in Jerusalem criticizing him for his interaction with Cornelius. Okay? And he says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard this, they were silenced, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. There's an interesting, as Peter recalls what happened, there's an interesting thing, there's a whole argument taking place behind the scenes. And Lewis asked me a question at the end of, the, of our class last time about this situation. You remember what it was, Lewis? Yeah, why did uh, Peter say the Holy Spirit descended upon them just as it did upon us in the beginning? Mm -hmm. What's your point? Well, uh, I always interpreted when they were sitting in the upper room and the Holy Spirit came down, mm -hmm. that was our interpretation of confirmation. Right. Not baptism. Okay. And? Here Peter says the Holy Spirit descended upon them mm -hmm. as it did upon us mm -hmm. in the beginning. Uh-huh. And he talks about it being, but they're not baptized yet. And then he said, why should they not be baptized? Right. So what's your point? Well, I wonder, I mean... What, you guys, there's like, an order problem, right? Got, yes. Okay, do you guys see what's going on here? What he's saying is, look, why were they confirmed before they were ever baptized? Why did they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit before baptism? 
And what's Peter's response? Let's look back real quick at chapter 10 at the, at the, when it happens. Uh, verse 44, chapter 10, verse 44. What's happened is Peter's just given a, 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 an apologetic about our Lord, giving a defense for him. And in verse 44, he says, While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the, the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Now what's the argument going on behind the scenes here? You have to be a Jew first. Yeah. I mean, look who's, look who's amazed. Who was it that's amazed? That the, the Holy Spirit came down upon them. Peter. Yeah, Peter, but also, what does it say explicitly? Yeah, the circumcised ones. Those who had been circumcised were amazed. And so what, what's Peter, how does Peter respond? He says, how can, how can we deny water, you guys? In other words, in other words, there's our answer to the discussion we've been having. How do we deal with these Gentiles? What should we do about them? Should we baptize them or not? And so God confirms them in the eyes of the apostles as proof of what must take place. There's this unusual occurrence of the gift of the Holy Spirit first. And in fact, later on, as Lewis pointed out in chapter 11, when Peter gives his defense, he says, I saw the Holy Spirit descend upon them just like it descended upon us at Pentecost. Now, how did it descend upon them at Pentecost? Had they been baptized first? No. God confirmed them with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? And so, as, as in some sense, as a way to lead Peter on a journey which he's very unsure about, he's fighting with it in his own mind. In fact, the, the party of the, of, of the circumcised, as we're going to find out, is a major influence driving this story right here, saying, these guys got to be circumcised, right? If we're going to even include them in the family of God at all. So there, there's this whole battle going on between what's to be followed in the Mosaic Law and what is the Christian, how are they to consider themselves in relation to these men? And so God intervenes and gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to show, to confirm not only them, but also to confirm in Peter's heart what he should do in relation to them. Okay, he says, look, they're just like us. Okay, does that make sense? A little bit. You guys go back and read that with that dilemma in the background. Those couple, especially the end of chapter ten and then that section, chapter eleven. If you look at chapter eleven, verse one. Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party crit criticized him. So you can see there's a battle going on in the background, even with Peter in the house of Cornelius, most likely. That they're sitting there debating with Peter, questioning what he's about to do. And Peter says, look, there's your proof. Go get the water. Stop waiting around that we can baptize them. Okay? 
So there's that argument in the background. I think that helps when you have that argument in the background, it helps to understand what's taking place. How's that, Lewis? Any other questions? You know, the apostles, you see, you never see whether apostles are baptized. Right. So maybe they were baptized in faith at the same time as uh, the Holy Spirit came down on them. Well, what is baptism? Well, absolution from original sin. What's that? What's that, Mark? Yeah, the scriptures tell us it's being born again into Christ, being resurrected in Jesus, being joined to him. Okay? Baptism and confirmation in the early church, though they were separate sacraments, were considered very much related. In fact, all of the sacraments of the Catholic Church, I mean, look, when I go to confession, what happens to my soul? What do I receive? Not only absolution, but I receive grace. When I receive the Holy Eucharist, I receive grace. When I receive baptism, I receive grace. Do you see? All of the sacraments help us to be further joined to Jesus Christ. Yes, they are separate sacraments, but they are part of the one mystery of our participation in the life of God. Okay? And so, were these men, or were the apostles, baptized at Pentecost? Baptism simply means being plunged into. Were they baptized? Well, when we talk plunged into, they're plunged into the life of Jesus Christ. They're joined to Him. Were they baptized at Pentecost? Yeah, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, an aspect, you could say, or a form of baptism. And be careful, I don't you know, I mean, I'm speaking very vague, in very vague terms here. Don't, you know, hold me to, to, to um, heavy theology on that or anything like that. Yeah, we want to make distinctions. But at the same time, we want to understand that God is not bound by the sacraments in the way... I mean, that's the way He's given them to us. But He can give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we see there, before baptism, if it suits His purpose to save our souls. Okay. Yes. In, in, during the Easter rite, the, the baptism of, of the art of new members to the church, mm -hmm. baptism takes place right, right before. It's in the same, you know, fifteen-minute period as right. confirmation. There, there doesn't have to be this big separation of you know time and space between baptism. And we, and we, we practice that even today, so it doesn't seem that there is this <coughs> distinction. Well, there's, I, I want to say, there is a, dis there is a distinction, but you're absolutely right that, that the Easter Vigil gives us a vision of what it was like in the early church. And in fact, you come to my, to my parish, we still baptize that way. Infants, baptized and confirmed. I mean, the child comes out of the baptismal font and oil is poured all over him on all his senses, on his palms, his eyes, and ears, everything. And to the outsider who knows no theology, I mean, it's all the same thing. It's all part of, we're just... It, Right? It's, they're the rites or the sacraments of initiation. The person being initiated into the Christian life. Okay? So it's a very important aspect is to always remember that when we separate baptism and confirmation for kids today, we got to be very careful because we can draw, we can build a whole theology on questionable practice of separating the sacraments. I speak there on the, from the church's perspective that that's a historical development and we've separated the two sacraments. 
Um, and there's great debate within the church of whether that separation is really a good thing or not, or whether we should work to bring those back together so that we see how united they are. Right? Well, somewhere yes. there, there in the Bible it says that John the, Baptist, John the Baptist baptized with water, but in the future it would be by the Holy Spirit. Right, right. Yeah, which we covered in the John, Gospel of John thing. So if you don't mind, I'll leave that alone for a little bit. But this, it points to two aspects of baptism. Okay. I know what you're saying, you know, yeah. and, but Bishop Liberty always says, oh, you know, when you were a little baby, you were, you had no sin, and you know, right. and now you're an, an older person, and it's you who are committing yourself to, you know, um, further, yeah. further your... Right. No, and, 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 and yes, and you also understand he's speaking in a sermon. He's not writing a great theological tome or anything like that. And I would say that, that Bishop Liberty would be the first to admit that we have to be careful that we don't look at confirmation as a uh, Christian bar mitzvah. Exactly. Okay? And uh, it's not that. Um, yes, it does give us strength to live as adults. We can say that. But it, so is the Eucharist. Okay, so yeah, any sacrament I receive it brings me up, builds me up in Christ, right? All right. Um, just a quick point about. Uh, come on in. I think there's a chair back there somewhere. Can someone get her chair, please? Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Um, Just one other point real quick in verse 26, and then we got to move on. You guys with me? Chapter 11, verse 26. Um, or verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a large company of people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, so that's just a little thing for you on what were they called before that? Do you remember? The way. Yeah, simply the way. The way back to paradise. The way back to the Holy Land. The way back to our relationship with God. So there you go. In Antioch, the Christians were, or the followers of Jesus were first called Christians. For me, that's very special because my church that I go to, the Melchite Church, is originates in Antioch. So we hold that as a great standard. And also, that Peter was the first bishop of Antioch. Before he went to Rome, tradition tells us he went to Antioch and was bishop there. Okay. Um, in chapter 12, i got to just fly here. Chapter 12, we get a story of uh, Peter's arrest and the death of Herod, which we don't have to cover. Okay, So we're going to skip that unless you have any questions about chapter 12. Because I got a half an hour now to go over the rest of this thing and watch how I'm going to do it. We're going to skip chapter 13 and 14 also. Yes. St. James. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you. He killed the St. James, the brother of John. James the Greater. Um, yes. And then John, James the Lesser was the bishop. Um, I should have actually looked this up. It's James, uh, but the relationship with John, is it say it right there? Yeah. This looks pretty bad. It's just that uh, we have other issues to cover. Where is that? Um, yeah, the brother of John. Okay, good, with the sword. Yeah, that is James the Greater. 
And I have in the back, if you didn't get it, don't get it now, but you can get it at the end. I made for you, because I love you so much, this nice little story. It's the tradition of the life of St. James and his death. And where is St. James the Greater buried? Do you know? Yeah, in Spain, Santiago de Compostela. And you can make a pilgrimage there even today. I highly recommend it. I did it with my wife before she was my wife. And uh, it's wonderful. And you go in there and it's just, it's, at one point it was ranked in front of Rome as a popular pilgrimage site. Okay, so it's just a beautiful place to go. I would love to lead a pilgrimage there, so if anyone wants to go and pay my way, let me know. <laughs> you can read the story about how it happened. Okay, it's a, it's t- it tells a story about all sorts of miracles that take place. And when you're reading it, friends, don't doubt, because you have an Acts of the Apostles that men were raised from the dead at the hand of the Apostles. If the apostles can raise people from the dead, then what else, what can't they do? Okay, and why can they raise people from the dead? Because Jesus Christ has given them a participation in their own life, in his own life. Okay, so you read the story of St. James right there. You can take that home and read it on your, when you're lying in bed tonight. It's fantastic. Um, and so messed up because I carried it through Spain with me. We read it along the way you know, as, uh, on one of the days. Um, okay. What else? Do you have any other questions about that? About There's another question about some of the uh, disciples. Mm-hmm. His name was John. Yep. And his other name is Mark. Yes. Who's this John? Uh, it's Mark, the evangelist, most likely. Okay, who ends up becoming a disciple of Peter later on, receives the gospel, or most likely the gospel he's writing down for us in our gospel of Mark, is the gospel of Peter, the one related to him from Peter. Okay? He's the cousin of Barnabas. Yes, the cousin of Barnabas from chapter 22 of Acts, or something like that. Okay. Um, so you get that there in verse 12, chapter 12, verse 12, you get the story of John Mark. Okay. All right. Any other questions about chapter 12? Good. Chapter 13 begins for you the story, the first journey of St. Paul. Okay. Now I'll show you what I did in my, my Bible because it is helpful for me. I told you this last time to mark up your Bible. I took a, one of my colors. I just chose pink for whatever reason. And I wrote at the top Paul's first journey. And I made a line alongside that whole thing all the way till the end. Because I can look at that now. There it is. There's Paul's first journey. Okay, And it's a major dividing point also in the Acts of the Apostles. So that's one way that's helpful for you to be able to line that out. And I'm not going to say anything about that um, except the very end of it. And then we got to move on. I'm sorry, this uh, Mark was uh, also one of the apostles of, of Jesus? Uh, no. 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 Okay. Um... The thing I wanted to talk to you guys about is verse is chapter 14, verse 22 and 23, real quick, just to cover one point before we talk. Meat of the matter in chapter 15. I'm sorry. We're going to do chapter 14, verse 22 and 23. This is Paul's return as he's on his way back during his journey. And he returns strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. <clears throat> Why do I want to say point that out? First of all, men being appointed over the church in an authoritative position of the church from above. Why from above? Because it is Jesus Christ who reaches his hand out into the world through his followers. Right? And so in the church, oftentimes, or any true authority, it comes from the top down because it is Christ who is our head. And he reaches through the body of Christ to touch the least members. Okay? Secondly, we see there that they appointed elders. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I'm not very good with languages, but I think it's helpful. We get there the translation elder of the Greek word presbyteros. Now, how many of you know the difference between a translation and a transliteration? Peter, go ahead. Tell us. A transliteration, you just take the same letters and make it... Basically the same word in the new language. Okay, give me, give me translation, you render the meaning. The meaning. So give me the, give an example. Can I use presbyters? Sure. Okay. Well, just right there. No, give me another one. How about angelos? What's the, an angel, what is it? A messenger. A messenger, but we transliterate it in the English, coming in English just as angel. Because it's a particular office, and it's more for us than just a messenger, right? It's the spiritual, a heavenly messenger sent from God. And so the technical word, angelos for the Christian, coming into English, English as angel, has a greater meaning for us than simply messenger. Does that make sense? Okay, similarly with presbyteros in the Greek, the literal translation is elder, but coming through the Latin into German and into English, the transliteration is simply priest. But we read Acts there, and we misread it, uh, well, we misread it by reading the literal word, but it's like reading messenger instead of angel for us. Our concept is not adequate. Because for us, in 2007, when I say to you, an elder of the church, what do you think? Well, the Presbyterian elder. Yeah. The, the church doesn't look very Catholic, does it? But in fact, the word there, transliterated, is priest. And that's where we get the word priest from. All right? The Douay reigns as priest in it. What's that? It has priest, right. And because the Douay rings is being translated from the Latin Vulgate, whereas most of your Bibles in front of you in English are being translated from the Greek with the help of or with the guidance of the King James Version. And the King James is the first time, most likely, that we get... Uh, that we get a real focus on elder as the translation okay, of the word instead of the transliteration of priest. Okay, to complicate matters, no, I don't want to call them. Forget all this. Just keep it there. When you're reading elder, read priest. Okay, it's fine. All right. Um, not only is it fine, it follows the no normal thing of angel and, uh, and episcopos, the overseer, okay, the bishop, things like that. Then in our minds have a greater, uh, heavier concept. Okay, is there any questions on that point? Brooke, you have a question? No, it's okay. Say it, it's okay. No. Okay, so Protestants, they believe, when they read that translation, they believe it as an elder? Well, what I'm, both Catholics and Protestants, Christians today, 
reading elder have all sorts of baggage coming along with it. And our baggage is that, well, in the Catholic Church, we don't call our leaders within the parish elders. And so the, when we're reading this t- text, the church looks much more Protestant to us than it really should look to us. And in fact, when I read that, uh, verse 23, and when they had appointed priests, whoa, not too many options besides the Catholic Church. I mean, there's some other options, but not too many. Okay, you see what I'm saying? How Catholic that sounds, yeah. But I think they were also trying to avoid the association of just male. Because at that time in the church, there were a lot of female leaders. Not necessarily full-blown top leader, but there were a lot of female prophets, teachers, leaders of the church, and to, to denominate it as the priest, at least in the current connotation of priest, is a very masculine thing, whereas an elder isn't necessarily. Okay, maybe. Yeah, I mean, there might be. I'd have to see, you know, are there any females called elders? in the New Testament. Is that what you're saying? There are several. That's what I mentioned. Yeah, I'd have to look back to the Greek and see what the word they're using there is. Okay? So, um, all right. Um, In chapter 15, verse 1, we have just had two chapters of Paul's journey as he goes out to the Gentiles. A similar situation as who? Who else just went out to the Gentiles in a way? Peter. And he talked to Cornelius. And what was the result of his conversation or his whole relationship with Cornelius? When he goes back to Jerusalem, what happened? They start baptizing Gentiles. What's that? They start baptizing Gentiles. No, look at... Look at uh, yeah, he gets criticized by the circumcision party. Right? So Paul goes out now and goes on a whole rampage. And he goes to all these cities, has all these converts among the Gentiles, and he comes back to Antioch, to his origin, and what happens? Chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Jerusalem, from Judea, uh, and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. See the same issue. And this is the issue that's going to be driving the early church, the argument within the early church, for at least the first hundred years. Okay, um, at least until at least until the destruction of Jerusalem in seventy A.D. But even after that, okay. So Peter, you got your doing your names or what? Yes, you do. Okay, Joe, can you read for us? Sorry, it's just it's difficult. <coughs> Chapter fifteen. Go ahead, just read from verse one. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, reporting the conversion of the Gentiles, and they gave great joy to all the brethren. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. Hey, there's, a, there's another classic example of what I'm talking about when we're reading and we get this concept of, of what the church looks like. It, as we saw in chapter 1 of Acts with the appointment of Matthias into the office which Judas had, the word there for office was episcopos, overseer, the word we get bishop from. Okay, so they saw that particular office that the apostles were filling, 
as the office of overseer, or we could translate as bishop. Okay, so you could um, you, you could in verse four when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles. Now the apostles are they're bishops of the church, but they do have a particular. Um, what identity as apostles in particular, but also they did fill the office as bishops. So if we read it as when they came when when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and by the bishops and the priests. Do you see the difference in how I read the text? I mean, all of a sudden, our concept, our vision of what that looks like in our minds is fundamentally different. So okay. are the apostles here beyond the twelve apostles chosen by? No, no, I wouldn't. I would not saying that, and it would be irresponsible to translate that as bishops. Okay, but I am saying the office they're fulfi- they're filling is the office of a bishop, as overseer of the church. Okay, um, and so we get in, in from our perspective in our minds, we have a hard time because it's all sorts of fantasies or pictures of what it looks like to be an elder in the church versus what it looks like to be a priest in the church. To be active, okay. this one doesn't really about presbytery. Okay, which is a little more, maybe a little better, gives a little better concept for us. Okay, it's halfway there. Okay, no, and again, elder is the literal translation. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, but in our minds it become it can become confusing. All right, let's keep going. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they, they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, "It is necessary to circumcise them and to charge them to keep the law of Moses." The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter rose and said to Okay, stop. Okay, so we get now the introduction of what is traditionally considered to be the first ecumenical council, the first council of the church. Okay, the elders or the leaders of the church, elders, the overseers, the bishops, the apostles of the church are called together to deal with a, a, a uh, serious matter within the church and to declare a definitive answer on it. Okay, They not only declare what the whole of the faithful should hold in this regard, but they write it down as a document and they send it out to the churches. Okay, so we get, And one further aspect is they see themselves as, in a sense, being the voice of the Holy Spirit. They're confirmed by the Holy Spirit, and they, with that confidence, they send forth the truth, which are all are the whole. We're going to just go ahead and read right through it. I don't even interrupt it. We're going to read right through it to get a picture of what's taking place. But all those aspects with the, what the Catholic Church considers to be a binding ecumenical council, we see right here. And it's this formula which the church will look back to throughout the years to, as her pattern. Okay, for declaring within the church what the faith for to believe. Okay. Any questions? Yeah, go ahead. That's fine. Peter rose and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them to the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, by one, you make trial of God, by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, 
which neither our fathers nor we have been able to be, to, to be bear, to bear. But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly kept silence, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon had related now God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which had fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up, that the rest of men may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who has made these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the pollutions of idols and from unchastity and from what is strangled and from blood. From early generations, Moses has had in every city those who preach him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Okay. Is that where I want you to stop? No. In chapter 12. Wait, hold on. Keep, keep reading. Just a couple more verses. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barnabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren, with the following letter. The brethren, both the apostles and the elders of the brethren, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greeting. Okay, and so on. And then he recounts what they just said, what they're declaring. So they declare within the council, then they write it down for everybody and send it out. Yes, Lord. We said in chapter 12 that Santiago was killed. Right, right. it's a different James. There's, yeah, there's two James. There's James the Greater. Is this your question? Yes. Okay, there's James the Greater who got, was killed. Okay, and James the Lesser. And there's also the theories of why they're called Greater and Lesser. Okay, it doesn't mean one's more important than another. And in fact, we get here in the first council... James the Lesser standing up but with his authority. And look, notice how the power he says. He says, therefore my judgment is this. Right? So he's the bishop of Jerusalem. Yeah, that's the question. Why is James standing up? What is his position here? First of all, Peter has been the one consistently standing up with authority in the church. And Peter does that here again at the council. But James also with authority stands up and makes a declaration at the council. And why is that? By tradition, this James the, uh, James the Lesser was Bishop of Jerusalem. And in fact, later, I believe it's... Oh, I should have this note in front of me. I don't. It's in Galatians where it says that Peter, John, and James were considered the pillars of the church. I forget. Anyways, okay, James was by tradition held to be the bishop of Jerusalem. And so since the, the council was taking place in Jerusalem, he stood up and had authority over his church there. And in fact, the argument really is taking place most in Jerusalem because in Jerusalem, all the Christians are Jews. And they're seeing apostles go out, they're seeing Paul come back, and they're hearing all these stories and saying, what's going on? 
Okay, so this whole internal fight in the church in Jerusalem is taking place, and it's going to continue. Okay? Other questions? No. Okay. Uh, St. John Chrysostom. The council seems to maintain the law in force because it selects various prescriptions from it. But in fact, it suppresses it because it does not accept all its prescriptions. It had often spoken about these points. It had often spoken about these points. It sought to respect the law and yet establish these regulations as coming not from Moses, but from the apostles. Okay, so St. John Chrysostom sees what the Christians are doing. We've actually watched this in Acts, where the church sees herself in a unique position to interpret the scriptures and now to make law for all of the faithful to be bound to. Okay, the church is in a unique position. Why? Because it's participating in the life of God himself. Okay? And so it sees itself as granted an authority to declare, even on the Mosaic law, what's to be followed and what's not to be followed. Okay? Notice there's two aspects of the declaration here. First of all, they say in verse 19, or James declares in verse 19. On chapter. Chapter 15, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Regarding what? What's the main issue? Circumcision. Yeah, circumcision. But we should write to them that they should abstain from pollutions of idols and from unchastity and from what is strangled and from blood. Why? In the next verse. Notice the word for. Because from... From early generations, Moses has had in every city those who preached him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Well, what's he saying? Translate that for me. Make slow change. Yeah, yeah, kind of. What? I mean, give me more. It's a well-known law. Yeah, these people have been growing up on this stuff. They're hearing it constantly. They're hearing the Mosaic Law constantly. So don't go in there and just everything. We're going to follow some of the law because these people are so used to hearing it constantly that it would upset them or would, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, scandalize. He's talking about the Gentiles, not the Jews. But where, where, where are the, yeah, he's talking about the Jews living among Gentiles, but he's also talking about the Gentiles and what we're to do with them. But notice the Christian communities are made up of what two parties? They're both. They're, they're living together, or they're supposed to live together. And the real problem is that we've got friction. Okay, how are we to relate the two parties together? Okay? And so he says, because these people have been hearing this in every place from the beginning, Hold these laws. Now, these particular laws are taken from Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. Don't look it up now because I got six minutes. Okay? Go home. Read the text. The four prescriptions given here are what are called the holiness code. Does anyone know what the holiness code was for? What's that? Keeping them alive in the desert. Yes, kind of. Okay, these four prescriptions, which were the whole of the holiness code, 
was the law that was to be kept when Gentiles were living among the Jews in order that the Jews would stay clean. They would not become unclean by, the, by those living with them as long as they kept certain aspects of the law. You go back and read this, okay, this, these four prescriptions, in light of chapter 17 and 18, and you'll see that when they're talking about unchastity, there's a certain aspect they're talking about, and it's relations, uh, close relations, relations with your sister or your mother and things like that, saying, uh-uh, you can't do that. Okay? The first prescription given there in Acts, that they should abstain from pollutions of idols. Does anyone know what pollutions of idols were? What's that? The animal sacrifice to the idols. Yeah, the animal sacrifice to the idols. And how would they stay clean of those? How would they become polluted by them? Touching. Not only touching them. Eating. eating. Yeah, in, yeah, eating. In that world... You got your meat at the temple market. You sat down to table at the, in the temple. You'll see that as you read through Paul's epistles as he's dealing with this issue. When you went to, in a sense, a restaurant in some ways, it was the restaurant connected with the different idols and the sacrifices taking place there. All the meats, all the animals that had been sacrificed would then be slaughtered and cooked up and the people would go and eat them. Okay? And it became an enticement to the Israelites. You can imagine that participating in eating of meat that was sacrificed to idols would be akin to participating in the worship of the sacrifice itself. So for the Jews who were living in the desert or living among the Canaanites, certain laws were given in order to keep them from becoming polluted, not because... The meat offered to idols is somehow really polluted or something like that, but because it was an enticement to them. Okay? We're going to look at a couple of texts to kind of flesh this out for us. Um, look at, keep, well, if you want to keep your hand in Acts 14 or 15, keep it there. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter eight. You guys there? Acts, Romans, First Corinthians. Okay. Cynthia, you want to read that to verse four through thirteen? Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that. An idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Okay, I'm going to hold you off for a second. I want to say one thing. These are the kind of issues we're going to be talking about in our in our uh, in the Pauline Epistles series we're going to have. Okay, we're going to go through some of the points of Paul as he's dealing with this issue in Acts 15, because Acts 15 becomes, as I said, that point of contention which he keeps writing to his communities about. And here it is. Okay, Cynthia, go ahead. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth. As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are, are all things and for whom we exist, and the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through being until now accustomed to idols, eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, 
We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Only take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you, a man of knowledge, at table in an idol's temple, might he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak man is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of my brother's falling, I will never eat meat, lest I cause my brother to fall. Okay. Pretty straightforward, right? Any questions about that? Yes. What, I mean, the Jews also sacrificed animals in their temples. Uh -huh. What did they do with the meat? Or did they burn them completely? Uh, some of it they burned completely, others they ate. Oh. Okay. Yeah, a lot of it they ate. Yeah. Okay, so chapter, First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. Chapter 10, verse 23. This kind of continues the thought for us. Go ahead, Sarah. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then out of consideration for the man who informed you, and for the conscience sake, I mean this conscience not yours, do not eat it. For why should my liberty be determined by another man's scruples? If I partake with thanksfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whenever, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the Church of God. Just as I try to please all men in everything, I do not. I do. I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Okay. The teachers of me as I am of Christ. Yeah, there's one of those classic things where they throw a verse in there and they didn't know where even where to put the chapter break, right? Because it's a celebration. Okay, keep that in mind. We'll look at it. two other things real quick and we'll be done. Uh, go back to, keep your hand in 1 Corinthians and go back to Acts. Okay? Right after the, the council concludes um, in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Come, let us return and visit the brethren in every city. So he's about to take off again. And in chapter 16, verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1, And he came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. Uh, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
So right after the council says, you don't got to be circumcised, Paul takes off, grabs the guy, and circumcises him. Poor <laughs> Timothy. Why? That you're old, you're too. Why? Was Paul being disobedient? Yeah, Paul's about to go out, and when Paul goes into a community, where does he go, Lewis? First, the synagogue. Right? And if Timothy's going to accompany him, he better not be a stumbling block to the conversion of the Jews. Okay? Look also at chapter 21, verse 17. A similar story with Paul. And this brings it really to light because the whole conversation takes place here. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. When we had, this is Paul. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, right? They go to the bishop, right, of the place. Just like when Mon's bishop came here, where'd he go, Mon? Who'd he go visit? First thing. Laverde, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and our official world. And all the elders were present, all the priests were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles for his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to be circumcised their children observe the customs. So what happens? He goes to Jerusalem and James says... It's great all these things are happening, but I got a community here, and they're, they're, they got some problems with you, Paul. Okay, so now notice what he tells them to do. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what you have been told what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and so for the holiness code. Right? What letter is that? But that's the letter that was sent from the uh, the council, right? So notice what he says. He says to Paul, he says, look, I, I'm sorry, even James says, I, I, I was the one that declared to the council, but look, we don't want to become a uh, stumbling block of what was my word I used earlier. Um, I lost track. A scandal to those in the community. So go and fulfill the law so that you do not scandalize them. Okay? Yes, Joe. I heard or I read somewhere that the Jews was maybe 80% of them converted to Christianity. Mm -hmm. So the majority of them did. Right. By what? what and there were definitely mass conversions. conversions. Yeah. Mass conversions. Yeah, especially in Jerusalem. You know, in the church in Jerusalem, these were all Jews. They were good, solid, practicing Jews. And even, you know, we read about the Pharisees and the circumcision party and all that. And all evil, you know. The Pharisees, when my brother was here, he mentioned this to you guys. The Pharisees were like diehard traditionalists, serious about their faith, right? They were trying to live as best they could according to the law. And so they were, they were dealing with this in their own lives, frustrated with it. Okay, not sure what to do. Let's look at one last verse, and then I, I promise that's it. Okay, look back to 1 Corinthians. 
chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Last thing we're going to look at. Chapter 9, verse 19. Don't start reading yet. Chapter 9, verse 19. This is Paul. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. Okay? Well, let me just read the next final couple verses. Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Well, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. We'll finish with that and these thoughts. That as we've worked through Acts to this point, we have watched as the church has become realized the great gift which God has given her to pass on to the world the saving message of Jesus Christ. Stay with me for a second, guys. As Paul goes out into the world, we read Paul's epistles, we read a man running a race so that his preaching is not in vain, becoming all things to all men that he may save the world for Jesus Christ. We have talked about how we participate in the life of Jesus Christ and therefore become partakers in the body of Christ, the church. I've talked to you guys also about standing in the grocery line and talking to the person next to you. And that's what Paul's talking about. Becoming all things to all men. Maybe the person in the grocery line isn't ready for my rosary. Maybe the person in the laundry mat or whatever might just need to hear God bless you. Maybe that's it. But if we don't do it, the bridge has been broken. The arm of Christ has suffered, reaching out into the world. Okay, as we um, make our way through the rest of the year and we do the epistles of Paul after Christmas, do me a favor. Read through the epistles with this chapter 15 in mind and read through the rest of Acts before you do it. Because that's your foundation. Read each one of those in its context and in light of what we just read about Paul becoming all things to all men. There's a lot of difficult things in his writing, but if you tie it back to its historical context, it will all make sense. Okay? Look forward to seeing you guys on Thursday and the following Thursday. So next Tuesday, we don't have anything. Right? It's just two Thursdays in a row now that we have uh, our series on conversion. Okay? Sorry to keep you over. Let's conclude in prayer. If you guys have any questions, I'll stay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was the beginning, it is now, and it shall be, for the world without end.
few minutes finish the song. Thank you all for coming. It's been